Chapter Five of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Mr. Prohack, Chapter Five. Charlie. One. When Mr. Prohack, in his mature but still rich velvet jacket, came down to dinner, he found his son Charlie leaning against the mantelpiece in a new dark brown suit, and studying the owner driver. Charlie seemed never to read anything but motor-car and light-car and side-car and motor-bicycle periodical literature. But he read it conscientiously, indefatigably, and completely, advertisements and all. He read it as though it were an endless novel of passion, and he an idle woman deprived of the society her heart longed for. He possessed a motor-bicycle which he stabled in a mews behind the square. He possessed several such machines. He bought, altered, and sold them, apparently always with profit to himself. He had no interest in non-mechanical literature, or in any of the arts. "'Your mother's gone to bed with a headache,' said Mr. Prohack, with a fair imitation of melancholy. "'Oh,' said the young man apathetically. His face had a wearied, disillusioned expression. "'Is this the latest?' asked his father, indicating the new brown suit. "'My respectful congratulations.' very smart, especially at the waist. For a youth who had nothing in the world but what remained of his wound gratuity and other trifling military emoluments, and what he made out of commerce in motor-bicycles, Charlie spent a lot in clothes. His mother had advised his father to speak to him about it, but his father had declined to offer any criticism, on the ground that Charlie had fought in Mesopotamia, Italy, and France. Moreover, Charlie had scotched any possible criticism by asserting that good clothes were all that stood between him and the ruin of his career. "'If I dressed like the dad,' he had once grimly and gloomily remarked, "'it would be the beginning of the end for me.' "'Smart!' he now exclaimed, stepping forward. "'Look at that!' He advanced his right leg a little. "'Look at that crease. See where it falls?' The trouser crease, which, as all wise men know, ought to have fallen exactly on the centre of the boot-lacing, fell about an inch to the left thereof. And I've tried this suit on four times. All the bally tailors in London seem to think you've got nothing else to do but call and try on and try on and try on. Never seems to occur to them they don't know their business. It's as bad as staff-work. However, if this fellow thinks I'm going to stick these trousers, he'll have the surprise of his life to-morrow morning. The youth spoke in a tone of earnest disgust. "'My boy,' said Mr. Prohack, "'you have my most serious sympathy. "'Your life must be terribly complicated by this search for perfection.' "'Yes, that's all very well,' said Charlie. "'Where's Sissy?' "'Hanged if I know. "'I heard her playing the piano not five minutes since. "'So did I.' Machin, the house-parlour-maid, then intervened. Uh, "'Miss Sissy had a telephone call, and she's gone out, sir.' "'Where to?' "'She didn't say, sir.' She only said she wouldn't be in for dinner, sir. I made sure she'd told you herself, sir. The two men, by means of their eyes, transmitted to each other a unanimous judgment upon the whole female sex, and sat down to dine alone in the stricken house. The dinner was extremely frugal, this being the opening day of Mrs. Prehack's new era of intensive economy, but the obvious pleasure of Machin in serving only men brightened up somewhat its brief course. Charlie was taciturn and curt, though not impolite, 
Mr. Prohack, whose private high spirits not even the amazing and inexcusable absence of his daughter could impair, pretended to a decent woe, and chatted as he might have done to a fellow clubman on a wet Sunday night at the club. At the end of the meal Charlie produced the enormous widow's cruise which he called his cigarette-case, and offered his father a cigarette. "'Doing anything to-night?' asked Mr. Prohack, puffing. "'No,' answered desperately Charlie, puffing. "'Ring the bell, will you?' While Charlie went to the mantelpiece, Mr. Prohack secreted an apple for his starving wife. "'A uh, machin,' said he to the incoming house-parlour-maid, "'see if you can find some port.' Charlie raised his fatigued eyebrows. "'Yes, sir,' said the house-parlour-maid vivaciously, and whisked away her skirts, which seemed to remark, "'You're quite right to have port. I feel very sorry for you two attractive gentlemen taking a port dinner all alone.' Charlie drank his port in silence and Mr. Prohack watched him. 2. Mr. Prohack's son was, in some respects, a great mystery to him. He could not understand, for instance, how his own offspring could be so unresponsive to the attractions of the things of the mind, and so interested in mere machinery and the methods of moving a living or a lifeless object from one spot on the earth's surface to another. Mr. Prohack admitted the necessity of machinery, but an automobile had for him the same status as a child's scooter, and no higher. It was an ingenious device for locomotion. And there for him the matter ended. On the other hand, Mr. Prohack sympathised with and comprehended his son's general attitude towards life. Charlie had gone to war from Cambridge at the age of nineteen. He went a boy, and returned a grave man. He went thoughtless and light-hearted, and returned full of magnificent and austere ideals. Six months of England had destroyed these ideals in him. He had expected to help in the common task of making heaven in about a fortnight. In the war he had learnt much about the possibilities of human nature, but scarcely anything about its limitations. His father tried to warn him, but of course failed. Charlie grew resentful, then cynical. He saw in England nothing but futility, injustice, and ingratitude. He refused to resume Cambridge, and was bitterly sarcastic about the generosity of a nation which, through its war office, was ready to pay to studious warriors anxious to make up university terms lost in a holy war, decidedly less than it paid to its street-sweepers. Having escaped from death, the aforesaid warriors were granted the right to starve their bodies while improving their minds. He might have had sure situations in vast corporations. He declined them. He spat on them. He called them graves. What he wanted was an opportunity to fulfil himself. He could not get it, and his father could not get it from him. While searching for it he frequently met warriors covered with ribbons, but lacking food and shelter not only for themselves, but for their women and children. All this, human nature being what it was, was inevitable but his father could not convincingly tell him so. All that Mr. Prohack could effectively do, Mr. Prohack did, namely, provide the saviour of Britain with food and shelter. Charlie was restlessly and dangerously waiting for his opportunity. But he had not developed into a revolutionist, nor a communist, nor anything of the sort. Oh, no, quite the reverse. He meditated a different revenge on society. 
Mr. Prohack knew nothing of this meditated revenge, did not suspect it. If he had suspected it, he might have felt less compassion than, on this masculine evening with the unusual port, he did in fact feel. For he was very sorry for Charlie. He longed to tell him about the fortune, and to exult with him in the fortune, and to pour, as it were, the fortune into his lap. He did not care a fig now about advisable precautions. He did not feel the slightest constraint at the prospect of imparting the tremendous and gorgeous news to his son. He had no desire to reflect upon the proper method of telling. He merely and acutely wanted to tell, so that he might see the relief and the joyous anticipation on his son's enigmatic and melancholy face. But he could not tell it, because it had been tacitly agreed with his wife that he should not tell in her absence. True, he had given no verbal promise, but he had given something just as binding. "'Nothing exciting it to-day, I suppose?' he said, when the silence had begun to distress him in his secret plea. "'No,' Charlie replied. "'I got particulars of an affair at Glasgow, but it needs money.' "'What sort of an affair?' "'Oh, rather difficult to explain. Buying and selling, usual thing.' "'What money is needed?' "'I should say three hundred or thereabouts. Might as well be three thousand, so far as I am concerned.' "'Where did you hear of it?' "'Club.' Charlie belonged to a little club in Savile Place, where young warriors told each other what they thought of the nature of society. Mr. Prohack drew in his breath with an involuntary gasp, and then said, "'I expect I could let you have three hundred. "'You couldn't.' "'I expect I could.' Mr. Prohack had never felt so akin to a god. It seemed to him that he was engaged in the act of creating a future, yea, a man. Charlie's face changed. He had been dead. He was now suddenly alive. "'When?' "'Well, any time.' "'Now?' "'Why not?' Charlie looked at his watch. "'Well, I'm much obliged,' he said. 3. Mr. Prohacker brought a new cheque-book from the bank. It lay in his hip pocket. He had no alternative but to write out a cheque. Three hundred pounds would nearly exhaust his balance, but that did not matter. He gave Charlie the cheque. Charlie offered no further information concerning the affair for which the money was required, and Mr. Prohack did not choose to inquire. Perhaps he was too proud to inquire. The money would probably be lost, and if it were lost, no harm would be done good, rather, for Charlie would have gained experience. The lad was only a child, after all. The lad ran upstairs, and Mr. Prohack sat solitary in delightful meditation. After a few minutes the lad reappeared in hat and coat. Mr. Prohack thought that he heard a bag dumped in the hall. Uh, "'Where are you off to?' he asked. "'Glasgow. I shall catch the night train.' He rang the bell. Uh, May Chin run out and get me a taxi, Sharp?' "'Yes, sir.' May Chin flew. This was the same girl of whom Mrs. Prohack had dared to demand nothing. Mr. Prohack himself would have hesitated to send her for a taxi, but Charlie ordered her about like a slave, and she seemed to like it. "'Rather sudden, this, isn't it?' said Mr. Prohack, extremely startled by the turn of events. "'Well, you've got to be sudden in this world, Governor.' Charlie replied, and lit a fresh cigarette. Mr. Prohack was again too proud to put questions. 
Still, he did venture upon one question. "'Have you got loose money for your fare?' The lad laughed. "'Oh, don't let that worry you, Governor.' He looked at his watch once more. "'I wonder whether that infernal girl is manufacturing that taxi or only fetching it.' "'What must I say to your mother?' demanded Mr. Prohack. "'Give her my respectful regards.' The taxi was heard. Machin dashed into the house and dashed out again with the bag. The lad clasped his father's hand with a warm vigour that pleased and reassured Mr. Prowhack in his natural bewilderment. It was not consistent with the paternal dignity to leave the dining-room and stand valedictory on the front doorstep. "'Well, I'm dashed,' Mr. Prowhack murmured to himself as the taxi drove away. And he had every right to be dashed. End of chapter 5